invite you to stand with me, if you are able, in the reading of God's Word in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, and then jumping over to 27, beginning at verse 15, if you want to have your finger ready there. We will be back to Revelation in two weeks, okay? So Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of Him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And now to Matthew 27, beginning at verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, on this Palm Sunday, one that uh, we've likely celebrated year after year after year, we pray, Lord, that Your Word would hit us afresh. That we would experience Your Word, Your truth, in a new way. In a way that is life-changing. In a way that sets us on the path that You desire us to be on. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I heard the story of a young man named, uh, of a man named Jason who was driving home from work one day and he decided to stop to watch a local Little League baseball game that was being played in a park near his home. He sat down behind the bench on the first baseline. He turned and asked one of the boys what the score was. Oh, well, we're behind 14 to nothing, he answered with a smile. Really, he said, I have to say you don't look very discouraged. Discouraged, the boy asked with a puzzled look on his face. Why should we be discouraged? We haven't been up to bat yet. This boy wasn't discouraged or disappointed. But I want to suggest this morning that the primary message of Palm Sunday has to do with discouragement and disappointment, especially with God. And let me also suggest that all of us struggle with this, either regularly or periodically. And when we do, there are, are several responses we have when we find ourselves disappointed with God or with God's people. The first is an utter rejection of the Christian faith. We stop going to church we question the beliefs and morals we've grown up with. We absorb the values and beliefs of our culture or whatever subculture that we choose to embrace. But there's another response. And a response that I've found to be more common. See, we, uh, we can continue to proclaim to be a Christian. It is our heritage, after all. Isn't being American just another way of saying we're Christians? So we hold on to that heritage, but we proclaim a disappointment, a disappointment with God or with His bride, the church. Church attendance becomes more sporadic. Basic biblical morals still might be there, and maybe even certain general beliefs about God, but a passion for Jesus and a personal relationship with God and a transforming life fade in the distance. For others, disappointment with God causes us to draw back. But we continue to embrace biblical morals and certain amount of religiosity. But the relationship with the living God becomes non-existent. We substitute a vital and growing relationship with Jesus with a moralistic, psychological belief system and a God who somehow seems more distant each and every day. And the sad reality is that the roots of our disappointment with God doesn't really have anything to do with the real God, the real Jesus, the real church, but only our own false expectations. See, much like the crowds in Christ's time, so too we have expectations of God, 
expectations of a Savior that are false. Expectations that don't meet up with reality. So if you uh, like to take notes, you'll find in the middle of your bulletin there some, uh, some notes there that uh, I will help you fill in the blanks as we go along. And this is point one on your outline. These crowds had a warped view of who the Messiah was to be. In uh, the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read the verse, Your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. See, they had seen the Messiah was to be a king, but an earthly king that would come to save them in power, in earthly power. He'd be a great conqueror, a savior that would deliver them from their oppressors, the Romans, who had made them into a vassal state and taxed them very heavily. They were burdened and had lost their identity as a people. See, the term Hosanna, which means, O Lord, save us, is what they were shouting. And point two on your outline is this. Palm fronds symbolize nationalism and victory. See, as they wave the palms, they point to their expectation of God. What they saw God doing for them through a new Messiah, a new king, a new general, who'd lead them into a new nation in power where they can again find pride and strength in themselves and in their nation. Now, there's nothing wrong with those desires for that kind of delivery. The problem comes when we miss out. When we miss out on what the real God is doing. Because we're busy hoping for something that God never intended to provide. See, they're disappointed with this king. Oh yeah, he comes as a king all right. But not the kind of king that they expected. As he comes in riding on a donkey, even a foal of a donkey, we're told. Just as the true prophet of God had foretold. He comes as the kings of the ancient Near East would enter a city who were coming in peace, not conquering. He comes humbly, and he comes in peace. He won't be the conquering king that they expect, at least not conquering nations. He won't deliver them from Rome as they had expected. And when they see this, how will they respond? When God and Jesus Christ, the sovereign and providential God who is in control of the universe doesn't come as they desire, how will they respond? Will they embrace Him as God? Will they receive the Savior of the world as He truly is? Or will their disappointment draw them away? He comes to the temple and he disrupts the money changers in the place where the Gentiles were given a place where they could approach God. In Christ's time, it had been transformed into a place where people could exchange currency for temple currency so that the religious leaders could profit. So point three on your outline is this. The meaning and purpose of the temple has been lost 
in their religiosity, and in their profit-seeking. The house of prayer for all nations was lost. And the Messiah comes and condemns their religion and religious practice. The place where people who were distant from God could come and pray and connect with God had been transformed into something that was the exact opposite of that. And so he condemns this. And he draws attention to their corruption and the sin of the religious leaders. How will they respond? Will they agree with the Messiah and repent and turn from their corruption and receive Him as their King? See, when God exposes your sin and my sin, how do we respond? When God reveals what you believe to be good to not be good, but rather to be sinful, how will you respond? Will you say to yourself, well, if God's like that, then I don't want Him. If what I hold dear in my own selfishness is just corruption in the sight of God, then I have no room for that God. Recently, I, uh, I reconnected with one of my son's closest friends while they were growing up. She was a neighbor girl who spent more time at our house and with our family than she did with her own for several years, while, we, uh, while Lynn and I were living in Wichita. When Lynn would call for the kids to come to eat, she would tell the boys to go get their sister as well. Well, she, uh, she found me, and she recently friended me on Facebook. When she read some of uh, the articles and posts that I had linked to, she decided to contact me with her objections about a particular morality that our modern culture has chosen to embrace as good, but which the Bible, without exception, considers to be sin. She, uh, we had a good long conversation, but she concluded our conversation by saying that she knows God loves her and she feels His love, but cannot believe in a God who considers something sinful, which she has chosen to embrace as good. As an aside, Lynn and I uh, have been praying for her for years, and we plan on continuing to do that until as long as the Lord gives us breath. You know, how will you and I respond when we find that what we believe is good, God states as evil? Will we too say that I can't believe in that kind of God? Or will we in humility turn in repentance? Will we trust Jesus? and His infallible Word? Or will we trust in ourselves? Will we draw near to Him in humble reliance on His Word? Or will we set up ourselves as arbiters of what is good and right and true, no matter what God says? Will we reject God and His church and withdraw from Him when God points His fingers at our sins and at our sinful attitudes? Or will we humbly receive the true King? How will you and I respond? See, their disappointment with God's Messiah led them to believe that He, could really, he couldn't really be the one that they were looking for all along. He couldn't be the real thing. This isn't the kind of God they believed in. At least that's what they were thinking. He doesn't measure up to 
their criteria. A Messiah that doesn't come in conquering. A Messiah that doesn't lead a rebellion. A Messiah that doesn't bring God's judgment down on the Romans. That can't be the Savior that we believe in. And now, a Messiah who was arrested and being tried. No way, that, that can't, couldn't possibly be the real one. Messiah that condemns their religious practices. A Messiah that even rejects Israel as the loci of God's work. That can't be the real one. See, the religious leaders have made their choice. They've decided that He is false. He has proclaimed them sinful and their religious practices as false. So therefore, He cannot be the true Messiah. And He certainly can't be God in the flesh. He must be condemned. He must be punished. So they arrange for a trial. One that's just a total sham. See, the entire trial went against their usual practices. It was held at night, not in the day. Held at the high priest's home instead of the temple courts. And it's on the eve of a festival day, which they never did. It begins with reasons for conviction instead of reasons for acquittal, unlike other trials of the day. Instead of presuming innocence until proven guilty, the Sanhedrin tries to find false witnesses who will testify against Jesus that He has violated the law. Many come forward, but their testimony is contradictory, and it fails. The Gospel of Mark tells us that the Sanhedrin is unable to convict Jesus because the witnesses cannot put together consistent testimonies. The witnesses disagree. And they're false. It's just a big sham. And so the verdict is confirmed on the same day instead of waiting until the next day, which was customary. See, all of this just shows their hearts. They had already chosen to reject Him. And in the midst of all this, not only does Jesus confess that He is the true Messiah, but very God in the flesh, and they utterly reject this. They cannot accept any of this as good and right and true. God cannot be like this. None of this meets their expectation. So point four in your outline. Disappointment with God often leads to anger and rejection. And finally, even condemnation of the true God. You see, when we decide that God has so disappointed us as to turn our face against Him and draw away from Him what we are really saying is we know better. We would be a better God. We judge God. And we stand over and above Him. See, Pilate began a custom, now we're told, where he would release a prisoner at Passover. One that the crowd chose. The people of Jerusalem just a few days before had shouted Hosanna when Jesus entered Jerusalem. So he figures that maybe if he offers to release Jesus to them, this will be a way of stopping any possible social rioting. So he offers the crowd a choice. A prisoner who was a freedom fighter, a guerrilla fighter, similar to what uh, the Jews had experienced decades before during the time of the Maccabees. His full name, we're told, Jesus Bar Abbas. 
or literally Jesus, son of a father. Do you see the irony? And it's the next point on your outline, by the way. See, Pilate offers in Greek, Jesus, son of Abba, a father. Or, Jesus, the one and only son of the father. The crowd now has their opportunity to respond. Here's the choice. A guerrilla freedom fighter who in many ways represents, in maybe just a small way, the kind of Messiah that they really wanted all along, but with little or no real power. Or the Jesus that they had witnessed and experienced, the real thing, the real God, the real Messiah. Jesus' miracles, His passion, His giving, His remarkable teaching, His amazing sinless life, but the One who has come in weakness and humility. See, He has ultimately disappointed them. He was not what they expected. This was not how life was supposed to be. God was supposed to make us happy, wealthy, our own nation. And when something else more tangible is offered, they reject Him. Point six on your outline is this. Let His blood be on us and on our children. This phrase has the idea of responsibility. Even familiar responsibility, familial responsibility throughout generations. See, they are con- fully convinced that Jesus deserves death. And this statement has been called the darkest and hardest verse in the Gospels. See, the disciple Judas is disappointed at Jesus. So in his selfishness, he betrays him. Peter, who is brave but foolish, rash and impulsive, and he fails regularly, and he fails completely. Jesus has disappointed him, and he has failed Jesus. Caiaphas wants to hold on to his position, and he sees Jesus as undermining his power and his religious authority. Selfish. He would lose his position and his comfort. The people, well, they have a shallow faith. When something more directly and palpably is offered to them, they reject the one they've just welcomed as God's Messiah. They all either directly or indirectly call for Jesus' blood. They've all been disappointed with God. God hasn't met up with their expectations. Now here is the key. The key to the entire message of Palm Sunday and Holy Week. If we hold all these people, the people of Jerusalem, at a distance, we will never recognize our own responsibility and guilt in putting Jesus on the cross. Let His blood be on our heads. See, Jesus came to die in our place. And we too are responsible for putting Him there. For when we recognize our own guilt, 
our own bitter disappointments with God, instead of just staying at regret, we can take the step of repentance, the step of seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. Instead of keeping God at arm's length and turning our backs on Him, we can turn in repentance. And we can embrace the truth. Embrace life. Embrace forgiveness. And find that the true Jesus, the true God, is what we truly needed all along. So the question of Palm Sunday is, what will you do with your disappointments? In 1993, Gerald Sitzer, a professor at Whitworth College, was driving home from a a family outing. In the car was his mother, his wife of 20 years, and four children. A drunk driver swerved across the center line and hit them head on. In an instant, he lost his wife, his two-year-old daughter, and his mother. If ever there was a man who would be in a position to be disappointed with God, to be angry with God, why, God, did you allow this to happen? He writes in his book, A Grace Disguised, about the the incident and about his growth from there. Sitzer shares some insights from his painful journey of anger and disappointment with God. And he writes this, The accident itself bewilders me today as much as it did three years ago. Much good has come out of it. But all the good in the world will never make the accident itself good. It remains a horrible, tragic, evil event to me. Yet the grief I feel is sweet as well as bitter. I still have a sorrowful soul. Yet I wake up each morning joyful, eager for what the new day will bring. Never have I felt as much pain as I have in the last three years. Yet never have I experienced as much pleasure in simply being alive. Never have I felt so broken. Yet never have I felt so whole. Never have I been so aware of my weaknesses and vulnerability. Yet never have I been so content and felt so strong. Above all, he writes, I have become aware of the power of God's grace and my need for it. My soul has grown because it has been awakened to the goodness and love of God. God has been present in my life these past three years. God will continue to be present to the end of my life and through all eternity. God is growing my soul, making it bigger and filling it with Himself. My life is being transformed. So what will you do with your disappointments with God? How will you respond when unexpected tragedy strikes? Will your relationship with Jesus, what will it look like? When your life doesn't turn out how you planned, when your children don't turn out the way you prayed, and you're disappointed with God, 
How will you respond? When your church doesn't behave the way you want, when people fail you and you are disappointed with them and with God, how will you respond? When you don't get your way, when things don't go the way you wanted or expected, when God moves in directions you don't like, how will, re- how will you respond in your disappointment? Will you reject the true Messiah? Will you turn your back on Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible? Will you instead choose to define God on your own terms and honor the God of your making at a distance? Or will you draw near to the real God in humble reliance and dependence? Will you respond as the crowds? Or will you respond like Dr. Gerald Sitzer? See, today you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to let go of your own imaginations of God and come into a deep, intimate relationship with the real God in Jesus. I pray that you will draw close to Him, the real one, today. Let's pray together. Loving God, the truth is that each and every one of us experiences disappointment and oftentimes even anger with you, Lord. This isn't how things were supposed to be, we think. The path of discipleship is rarely easy. And until until I've seen myself in that crowd calling for your crucifixion, I will never truly understand the depth of your grace, your mercy, your love. Lord, this morning we We choose to depend on the real God. We choose to repent, to set aside our disappointments with you and realize that in our own weaknesses, in our own sins, in our own failings, you are the only place to go, the only real God the only one we desperately need in all of our disappointments. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you now to stand. I believe we're going to sing a final hymn together. Cons?
plead on, O King Eternal, the day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, the sins shall be on.